So hi folks, hello once again and you're very welcome along to another programme. To another edition of Down Your Way. Well, I'm outside Turles this week. Yeah, what a beautiful programme is in store for you. I have a very special guest on the programme. I'm in Grange, on the way to Templemore. Frank Mokler, you're very welcome to Down Your Way. Thank you very much, Eamon. And you're very welcome to Grange. Yeah, what a beautiful part of County Tipperary, because I'm after finding that there's a half dozen Granges in, in, in Tipperary. Well, this is the most important one, to <laughs> me anyway. And it's, it, we're just very near Tullis here, it's just a little town's land of Grange. And uh, the Moakslers were here, Cromwell hunters up from Grange Moakslers in 1640, and were here since. And uh, I have now got, I have 13 grandchildren, that's 14 generations of Moakslers here. And occasionally coming from Mass or the Mart, a man might say to me, how did the Moakslers last so long in Tullis? I always gave him all the same answer. We lasted, I said, because the more odd or awkward breed you could not meet. And that's what keeps you there when lads want to get rid of you. So you seemed to get on well together, did you? We got on fine, absolutely fine. Yeah. And through famines and pestilence, and we kept the faith and we were fine. But in any event, Em, you're welcome here. Absolutely. And it's, it's your first time being in Grange. And of course, it's a first time for everything. And the great example of that in my life, I was about 10. And the Boggan Haley, a very famous man up there in that court in the whole country, a neighbour bought an ass from the Boggan for a pound or 30 bob. He wanted the ass to go to the creamery. And coming home after three or four mornings, the ass lay down on the road and died. And the farmer went back with fire in his eyes back to the Boggan. And he said to him, the hash has sold me, he said, he lay down this morning and come to the creamery and died on me. Well, said the bargain to him, he never did that with me, he said. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good, good stories and all that. Talk about growing up years here in, in Grange. Yeah. Did you actually grow, grow up in Grange? Oh, I did. And I went, to, I, I went to school. I was the first boy that went to school in the Ursuline Convent. My mother, my mother, who was of the Colin Everard breed, a Lockmore woman, and uh, she was a boarder in the Ursuline. And my Aunt Mayor Mokler had been... Uh, very friendly with the nuns there as well. Now, whether that had to do with that, I couldn't tell you. But I went there until I got my first Holy Communion. And then, in 1940, I went to the CBS, where many generations of Moklers had been before me. Absolutely. But I'm going to take you back. How many Moklers have been great, grew up here, brothers and sisters? Oh, well, I, did, I only had two sisters. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't have any brother. Okay. If I had them, I'd have had a softer way through this planet a bit. But anyway, I, I didn't have any brother. I had two sisters, Evelyn and Maureen. My mother, and they both went to side, but they're both dead now, regrettably. Mm -hmm. Evelyn died the day I was 80, and uh, Maureen died with cancer of the esophagus in 1996. Mm -hmm. And uh, But that was it. But anyway, I left then, and I went up to the CBS to uh, Christian Brothers in Turles, where so many generations of mortals had gone before. They're there now for over 200 years, the CB, the Christian Brothers. A much maligned group of men in a way, but I often wonder where would we all have got such a free and good education if they hadn't been there. And of course... Uh, of course there have been a lot of stories and talks about uh, what happened in the brothers over the years, but we probably won't go into that well, one. Well, I can't. I have in time now. But I know all belong to me went there and all belong to my dad and my grandfather. And none of them, I never heard anything wrong about the Christian brothers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but interestingly... In third class, in the old Christian Brothers School, this was the year Scholelby was only being built. In third class, the shed in the middle of the schoolyard, there were 64 of us in that class. I have a beautiful photograph of that class. There was, there's 57 in the photograph. 
and a man down the road, Willie Keenan and myself, we could name the seven that were missing. But the reason I have the photograph, and it's on the star once or twice, because it's absolutely brilliant, was because 13 of them got their confirmation in that class, that time, because those boys were two and three years older than us. And back then, confirmation was only every three years. And the danger was that they'd be gone altogether before confirmation would come around again. Mm -hmm. But we had two fabulous hurlers in that class, hurlers. We had the inimitable Jimmy Doyle and the irrepressible Michael Murphy. Jimmy Doyle was so gifted. When he was in that class, he, he started doing things with the ball we thought couldn't be done at all at all. He was just... The, I had two idols in my life, mm -hmm. Jimmy Dyle in sport and Michael Purcell in the cattle trade. Absolutely. But I'm going to bring you back to that class, right. six, 64, yeah. young lads. Were they all in the one classroom? Yeah, well, and Brother Stein, yes, absolutely. And Brother Steinway was teaching us, a lovely man. And uh, the following year, they split us in two halves. I mean, the class, the numbers. <laughs> and uh, Brother, Ch the man who took that photograph was the Brother Chisholm. And he was teaching us in fourth class. Mm -hmm. And that was the year then. After Easter in fourth class, we went up to school, Ilby. Yeah. Was there an A and a B? There was, of course. Yeah. Okay. There was an A and a B. Mm -hmm. And we went up to fourth class. And who was teaching the B class was Danny Mayer, Jack and Kevin Mayer's father. Mm -hmm. Danny, old Danny Mayer. And uh, brother, brother Chisholm was teaching us. We went up to school, Ilby. And I can tell you, Eamon, I can tell you, Skull Elby was such, we didn't know ourselves. Terrazzo floors, long timber corridors, desks for two, big blackboard. And if you don't mind me saying, the cloakroom and the toilets were such a relief. It, we had a little, we had a, a lovely little limestone field to play Holland in and Jimmy Dyle to show us how. What more could we ask for? We really enjoyed ourselves in school. There was one brother in it that was a bit on the rough side altogether, Brother Glennon. But really, school, so we stayed there until that was in fourth class. Of course, we had a lovely hall in it where we could, uh, where they showed us a film occasionally and we could do our, our, our play. I would say school LB then and to this day was the best and nicest primary school in the county. I guess they had no, they had no corporal punishment. Oh, they had corporal punishment. Uh, oh, we had a course. You put out your hand and you got your slaps. Oh, what? A leather, was it? A leather, yes. Yeah. Mostly a leather. But we had lovely teachers. And the only lay teacher at that school that time, I remember rightly, in Scullielby, was uh, Willie DeWire. Uh, he, was, he was a lovely man. And he was into music and stuff. And he was selected on the minor hurling team as well. But uh, the hurling was everything. But after, after we get with, we, I got my confirmation there and the long trousers and I went back then down to first year in the old school again. And that was when the Palestine students would come up to us and also the, uh, the Palestine students and the lads in from the country, from what Jack Mayo's called the national schools, you see. And when they came in, a lot of them, we got on great with them. And I personally had a great relationship because I didn't have that many farmer friends uh, in Scullielby, but when they came in from the country schools and in from Upper Church and Holy Cross and also, and Two Mile Boris and mine and them places, Rahelty and Luke, of course, which is near me, I had any amount of farmers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got 
Can I take you back to your confirmation day? Was it something like today's confirmation? Well, it, it was. But I, as I understand it, there's no slap in the jaw anymore from the Archbishop. He doesn't get, you know what I mean? They don't yeah. get a slap in the jaw. But it was the same. I have, I have, I have grandchildren now that had the confirmation yeah. got and all that. The day with the family and all that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely, it? yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it's... Not, not in the, no, no, oh God, no, Eamon, no. So it's quite, I do remember, I had, I had a first cousin, a second cousin. He was laughing from Castellani. He'd be a brother, he, he was a brother to, uh, an, uncle, an uncle now to Declan Laffin, that's selected on the Tiberi And I remember, we got our concert, we came out from the church, and I don't remember any photographs of it at all. But I do remember mother and that chap's mother, they were both first cousins and had both very friendly and very great. So to treat of my life up till then, we went into Hale's Hotel for our lunch. My memory is we got a bit of beef and you could sew your boots with it. But in any event, I lived on the aroma that was around the place. And but that was you went home then, that was confirmation. First communion was nicer. In, Did you feel you were a stronger man then? Uh, well, I kept the pledge anyway, and that was no bother because Ron Walton Valley was my job. If I couldn't sell it, if they didn't drink it, I couldn't sell it. Mm-hmm. But I kept. But we did keep the pledge, and we did stay. Uh, talking about confirmation reminds me that uh, there was that story about recent story about a priest. He had a problem with bats in the church, bats flying around and he wasn't too sure how he could get rid of them so he asked one a few of the parishioners how he might get rid of them one of them said father they said you could electrocute them oh, I said I couldn't do that he said another said you could poison them father oh no he said I couldn't do that either and a third parishioner spoke up and said give him confirmation he says father and you won't see him for a long time again <laughs> I'm with Frank Moklor. We're taking the very first break. We're back just after these. Indeed, you're very welcome back to Down Your Way. I'm with Frank Moklor here in Grange, just outside Torlis this week. Uh, Frank, uh, we're talking about uh, your school days and all of that. Did you follow on from your secondary school? I did. I went to, well, uh, my secondary school, of course, apart from the books, it was hurling in the CBS that time. Hurling was religion. It was Rice Cup, Crow Cup, Dean Ryan Cup, Harty Cup. And after I left I left then at 16 and I went to Palace Kenry to the Salesians for a year in agricultural college. Okay. And uh, I came home then and after that to help my dad farming and I've been farming since. You wanted to be a farmer, did you? Was that your vocation? Well, I didn't have any brother. And I, I did think and still think that farming is the best life. It's the very best life. And of course, it might change a little now, but you might just save your soul into the bargain. And I've been looking out through ditches and gaps and over rivers all my life. I never saw a good-looking bird or a bottle of whiskey at the other side of the ditch. So in, so far as it was elsewhere, temptation might have set fire to me, I couldn't tell you. So you, you, you don't realise what you're after missing? Well, I'm thankful to God for what I have. And uh, I don't think I missed anything. But my dad just have an expression about the farmers. Beat men, wheat men, walk you off your feet men. Cattle men, cow men, farmers on their knees. And that was about it at the time. And uh, 
looking back over the 65 years of my full-time farming life, I can safely say that farming as a way of life for so many years after I started has in recent years become a much less enjoyable, much less enjoyable. The rules and regulations, the relative tyranny of officialdom. We don't own our land anymore. This officialdom is, is imposed by a few fat cats at the very top who are academics carrying briefcases and, lap and clipboards and that kind of stuff. I know I'm old-fashioned, and they have been re removed from the practicalities of farming, and worse it is going to get. The ways of work on the course over the years have improved. Now we have, now I don't do the dairying, and I have many great and most admirable, from where I'm sitting, there's a half a dozen big dairy farmers with massive herds of cows. They work hard, and they're very, very good at what they do. Unfortunately, and they make a lot of money at it. Unfo because the job I was at, I was told, there was always three ways of going broke, here, man. Slow horses, fast women, and feeding cattle for the winter. <laughs> yeah. So you, you had a total love for farming? I had, but it, it can be very trying. The weather can break your heart by times, and you have to put up with it. But at least it is rewarding. But if you don't love nature, love looking at a good bullock or a good cow or a good crop, you really have no business farming. It's a way of life. Now, I know they've made a business of it nowadays, but since they made a business of it, they made a bags of it because it's all figures and tags and it's endless. Now, the bureaucracy, I wouldn't be able at my age to do it. My son, Pat, is very good at it. He's a home nurse, I was 66, and he's very good at it. But really, really, it's soul-destroying because the guys that make these regulations, the fat cats that I'm talking about up on, on Kildare Street, they are in their own mind, they're probably perfect human beings. But they should appreciate that we're just human farmers. And if you have a problem with a tag or a beast missing, you'll get a letter in the post and the penalties, if you can, for the hutch, if he was found guilty, wouldn't have had the same sentence to serve as a fellow that couldn't find a beast or a tag or a blue card or something. Really, for old people like me, sign this on, old people are just, they're giving up farming. They're not able to follow the modern stuff that they're asked to do. You remember the cattle fairs? Did I do well? We used to, every, when I was young, from the time I was 10, 10, 11, any time my dad had cattle, which would be most fair, the first, the fair day in Turles was the first Tuesday of every month, every month. And the fair evening was the previous Monday. And the fair evening was for cows, strippers. Now, there were different versions to the days once, but strippers and heifers. What's a stripper? A stripper was a cow there might be, a, she wouldn't go and calf again. Now, you're not asking me about the modern version, but uh, she, she wouldn't go. I wonder what's going on. No, she wouldn't go and calf again, you see. Yeah. And there'd be what he was called snigging her. She'd take, have a little sup of milk for a while, and then she had no future as a cow, and you took her to a fair. She was a stripper cow. And the heifers, of course, were a heifer and strippers. And uh, of course, you had the, the fair morning, 
where we'd have eight or ten or fourteen bullets maybe that going to the fair. We'd have them in the field. The field was mulled where I'm sitting now. And take them out. And the mother would come out. We'd be up at four o'clock to eat our breakfast. The lads would come and they'd have theirs as well. We'd get the cattle out on the road. But before we'd take them out, mother would come out and she'd shake holy water on them. For the, what? The way we'd get a prize for them. Oh. Where we'd get a prize for them. That was lucky with the cattle. Right. And we'd go out on the road. I would hunt the cattle into the seemingly endless darkness until we got as far as the square. And our stand was near the market house as a square. And the square would be alive with shippers and dealers and tanglers and drovers and blockers, really would. I often wish over the years now that I could run one fair morning in Torlis because there'd be a green carpet on the fair after a few hours, a green carpet. And I always remember the women coming down to Woolworths. There was Woolworths in Torlis that time. And the women would be picking, the, these were, these ones to an extent, were what you, the women at that time, they were good, you know, in the dance hall, they were known as high flyers kind of a thing. They were the kind of women that farmers, mo, uh, farmers' wives didn't want their sons marrying. And of course, the opposite of the high flyers were the lads that were handy in dance, or fellas that were good on their feet and very good. And they were known as Mickey Dazzlers, the lads, you know what I mean? So yeah, getting back to the farmers' wives, they didn't want them to get married to what kind of people did you say? Uh, well, to, to, to high flyers, like, you know. What does that mean? Well, high flyers were women that were very fancy and mobile and, you know, maybe not, maybe didn't have as, you know, as high standards as a farmer's daughter might have. Okay. I'm not able to say. They were high, of course, the other thing, the other thing that we were advised going dancing long ago, there was two things. We were to avoid a high flyer, but we were also to try and get one out of a house where the father was the boss. Now, we'd have some job getting one of them nowadays, Ian, I tell you that. <laughs> get one out of a house where the father was the boss. Otherwise, you're better before you start, you know. But, uh, so why had the farmer always to be the boss? The well, where the father was the boss. Yeah. Well, that was a tradition, I suppose, the father was the boss. And or what did the boss mean? Well, the, the, well, well, the, well, as a man said to me, if I was getting married, let her know that outside the kitchen door or the hen house, she is not the boss. So, in other words, the boss was outside around the farm and he was the boss of the farm. She could be the boss of the house, and rightly so. And, of course, long ago things were so different. Look, people are so well off today. The sad thing about it is they don't appreciate it. But the standard of living today towards... I always remember as a, as a younger than the fails. It had an educational value. But I remember well, after the fair, we had to go over one morning with over my dad over to Croke Street. There was what they used to call an eating house in Croke Street. There was tables and chairs where lads at the fair would go in. They walked in from Upper Church and the Mice over Cattle or Christ was And they'd go over for a bit to eat at 10 o'clock in the day. Mm-hmm. And we weren't going for anything to eat. But I always remember I was standing there at the back of that little eating house. My dad, I didn't know who he was being. But anyway, a man and his wife, well, I took to you, a man and his wife came in. And I think he was from Upper Church, I'm not sure. But anyway, but I better keep it low. But anyway, uh, he said, he showed up, to, he was regularly in there, and he showed up to whoever was giving out the grub, the woman. He sh- I, I thought it was so mortifying for the woman. He showed up, tea and made for the man, he says, tea for the woman. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and she probably reared the cattle and the calves and 
reared them and mined them and they sold them or whatever. You'd imagine he'd give her a sausage or a rasher or something like that. I don't know. But they were What tough. kind of a guy was a tangler? Well, he was a fella. The truth would be a very elusive concept to him, do you know what I mean? Yeah. He, he, but In other words, he couldn't, he be, trusted. He he couldn't be trusted, could he? No, he wasn't shaped like a tangler, if you like. He'd be a kind of... Any of the tanglers I knew, they were butty lads, like a tub of guts, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And fellas that never got an emotive idea that began above the waist, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the kind of a guy you had that was a tangler. But... Would you be weary of him? Well, funny thing is, I would have a tangler, but I had no problem all my life with cattle dealers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely none. Mm -hmm. And I could deal with them all. And I found them, again, they're a much maligned group of men, but I found them quite honourable. Now, farmers might be surprised to hear me say that, but I did. I found cattle dealers honourable and even decent, most of them now. There were a few, like, there's a few farmers you couldn't deal with either, like, you know. And I'm with Frank Motor. We're going to have to take another break. We're back just after these. Indeed, you're very welcome back to Down Your Way. My special guest this week is Frank Motlow from Grange here outside Taurus. Frank, yeah, we, we, we just go back to the fairs for a bit. Uh, who looked after the cattle all day? Well, well, like, the cattle would be sold by maybe 8 o'clock in the morning. Would they? The, they would. Oh, you're thinking about the marts. No, no. The cattle, would, the cattle would be sold. And when the cattle were sold, we took them to, no, generally speaking, we took them to the railway station. So all, everything went by rail then. Almost everything. They, they had a monopoly. We took the cattle up to the station and loaded them. And the man that would buy the cattle would give you a docket, say 10 cattle at £50 each. Mm -hmm. And you would meet him. He would, he'd be the always in Hales Hotel at 10 o'clock then. And you go down to Hales Hotel at 10 o'clock and you get paid for your cattle. The deal was made. And uh, of course, he'd have to get look penny. But uh, always, if you could arrange it, if you knew a farmer that wouldn't give a, a halfpenny a look penny, if you could let him in first, you'd be a very decent looking man going in after him then, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that was how it was. And of course the fair days remind me, in 1956, 56, yes, I was 15, and my dad was ill-disposed, and it was the March fair, and we had cattle for the fair, and I was, the lads, the work lads took in the cattle with me and I said to my dad, I had 11 nice short-horn bulls, all short-horns that time, nice bulls, could be three years old. And I said to him, what am I supposed to make of these? Well, he said, you might get 65 apiece for them. He said, well, don't bring them home anyway, he said. The rates had to be paid in March, you see. And I went in anyway, and I was down at the market house with the lads. And I wasn't long there. And I saw this tall man coming across the street towards me. A young man, very tall man, a shop coat on him, a well-manicured ash plant. As he came towards me, I didn't know him. But that was the first time I saw Michael Purcell. He looked smart, and he was smart, very smart. And he bought the cattle from me. And that was the first deal I had with Michael Purcell. I sold him 1,400 bullocks another day. Oh, the cattle sheds. I sold him 1100 another day. And 
he was one of, Jimmy Dyle was my idol when I came to Harlem and Michael Purcell when I came to Cattle, Michael Purcell. And both of them were geniuses with their own different pieces of ash. And to look at Michael Purcell drawing cattle when he was culling cattle, it was an education. To look at Jimmy Dyle playing Harlem, he was just a magician. And one time at a funeral, the great Pat Stakesham, a granduncle out of the President Limerick Centre back, he said to me, Frank, you were at school with Jimmy, Jimmy Dyle when you were going to school and you hurled a bit with him. Well, I said, he wasn't, my, he wasn't very good at school. No, I said, he was, he, he was anything but good at school, I said, because I said, all his brains were in his wrists, I said. And the nearest I can see to him now in today's hurlers, I wouldn't say, because they're playing with a different ball, a different uh, hurley, and they're trained and massaged and done so much. The nearest thing to him now is Noel McGrath. But Jimmy Dyle was, and I remember one day, not very long before he died, I said to him, Jimmy, you were so gifted, I said. He said, Frankie, very unassumingly, he said, Frankie said, everyone has their own gift. Maybe they have, Jimmy, I said, but sometimes it's very hard to find it, I said. But he was, in his day, you're knowing the best of your time. Absolutely. He was the most gifted. What were the uh, week's wages, like in those days? Well, the week's wages, that's where the price of cattle and farm produce generally has collapsed, in a sense. In 1950, or thereabouts, my dad, for the three men he had working, now, they got what they used to call at their time, their breakfast, dinner, tea and supper. That was the way it was spoken about. And at the time, 30 shillings a week was what their wages were. So a fiver, you'd have changed out of a fiver to pay the three men for a week. And at the time, he was getting about 50 pounds for a good bullock. So that his good bullock paid the three men for 10 weeks, mm-hmm. easily. Now, a good bullock would pay one man for a week and a half, two weeks, he wouldn't pay him for two weeks anyway, one man. So it wouldn't pay the three men at all, at all. So what could a man get from the 30 shillings? Well, he could get a lot. I remember one of the, there was two Ryan Codgers working with me dad, they were two very good fellas, and one of Mickey Ryan, he would go to every night, he never missed a night at the pictures. He never missed a night at the pictures uh, from, no, sorry, he never missed a night at the pictures. Any night of the year, only Christmas night and Good Friday, I think. But for two shillings, he could go to, to, down to Delahunty Cinema, that's gone now, and, and unfortunately it's all the Delahunty's, and he could go down there and for two, he could come back up to least the Hall Street. He could get a bottle of orange, five cigarettes, wood binds, a bun or two buns maybe, and have change coming home out of his two shillings. So that'll tell you what he get for 30 shillings. On the other hand, though, like a man had a wife and children at home. Uh, like, when he goes home with his 30 shillings, what could that woman provide for his or three or four children? Well, the story was that when he went home with his 30 shillings, she handed him the bucket to go to the well for a bucket of water and took the 30 shillings from. <laughs> Did you love machinery? I hated it. The biggest prayer I have in this world, Eamon, is the next world I go to, that there be no farm machinery in it, because I wasn't good at it. 
And if you're not good at something, let somebody who's good at it get on with it. And uh, we have a man next to Sergeant of Joe Fogarty from Temple Delhi. What an outfit he has. The best in Ireland, I'd say. And, but if I had the price of what machines he has, I wouldn't dream of buying them. And if I had to borrow the price of them, I'd never see the light of day again. No, farm machinery is nearly worse than greyhounds. Just so many things we could talk about. I wanted just to link in to the, to the mat versus the fair. Yeah, well, the mat, the cattle dealers, the mats came in the mid-50s. And bit by bit, the old fairs died out. But the cattle dealers fought against the mats because, well, one of the big reasons was they were paying commission in the mart instead of getting look penny on the fair. And... Uh, I suppose there was more room to manoeuvre. Uh, when cattle were weighed, or are weighed, in the mart, a man would have a good idea what he should get for him. But long ago on the fairs, the weight wasn't a concern, it was all to do with the size of the cattle. Mm. And of course, that's how it's gone overboard now. There aren't any honest cattle now are nearly gone. Yeah. What about the payment on the grid? Well, the grid is a bone of contention with the farmer. You send your cattle to the factory now, and of course, once you load them, that's the end of them. Because if you go to the mart, you could bring them home again. But the grid is a bone of contention. And of course, the other thing is, you have the, the stupidity of the movements. If cattle have four movements, uh, you lose the bonus on them. And if they're over 30 months, you lose the bonus as well. But you know, the, the trade now has been taken over. The meat factories have a monopoly and are very, very well organised. But the, the other side of that coin is, when we had our own meat factories, I was involved with IMP in the mid-60s. We had Grand Canal Street and Leak Street. I said about the great farmers that are around me, great dairy farmers, much to be admired with huge numbers of cows, working hard, making a lot of money out of milk, certainly. But... The, the byproduct of, of their cow are just they're just terrible cattle, that's all. And those free I going back to Michael Purcell again. They were loading a boatload below in, in Waterford, uh, a load of cattle for Libya, two thousand cattle. And a fellow from up the Midlands came down with a load of freezing cattle. This man is forty years ago now. He let down the ramp. And the greatest crocs of Frisian cattle I ever happened to be, I ever saw, humps and lumps, backs that split a drop for you, big heads, big stomachs. And they were hardly to walk down the ramp. And Michael was there, Michael Post. I had to laugh. He said to your man, you can load up them again, he says. He says, to Libya, he says, not to Lourdes we're going, he says. <laughs> I'm with Frank Mokler. We're back with the final part of Down Your Way, just after these. Indeed, you're very welcome back to Down Your Way. I'm with Frank Mokler. Tell you again. We're going to talk about it. But when you grew up as a young lad and as a young farmer, um, what did you know about the environment? Or what did you want to know about it? Well, to be honest about it, we didn't know. We always thought what we were doing was fine anyway. And there was always cattle on the planet. And we always had what we had. There was no worry about the environment as such. And, uh, of course... But now we have this thing about climate change. Now, I mean, climate change is real. We have to accept that. 
But having said that, in whatever way this country, in whatever way they can reduce emissions, if that's what they want to do, for God's sake, don't be forced, which is what's happening, don't be forcing farmers to produce less and less food. The only real and everlasting wealth we ever had or will ever have in this little green island of ours is the top eight or ten inches of topsoil that we can produce food from. That, in a world that's getting hungrier and hungrier by the day, it is absolute lunacy. The, the environmentalists now, they want us to produce, they want rushes, briars, ditches, wilderness. Listen, I have no doubt that in 20 or 30 years' time, I don't expect to be around, but that will be reversed because the world cannot live without food. God sent manna from heaven when they were stuck. But the thing is, I'm not expecting to do it again because we have the land now to produce it. And we have all, the, by all means, if they want to uh, replace fossil food, fuels with renewables, that's fine. But leave the farmer alone. And at the moment, there is definitely an anti-farmer, anti-Christian media, a Dublin media that is very much inside. And they're far removed from reality. It, all this rewetting the bogs and all that stuff, shut is only loose. And here we are. They should take a look around the world. Look at the vast continents. Look at China. Look at, look at what's going on in the Ukraine with Russia. Look at India and America and South America. The Brazilians will be delighted to hear we're producing less beef, if that's the case. They'll send in all we want to materials. They'll, look at we are, look, Einstein, the great mathematician, he said, you have two things that were infinite. One was the universe, and the other was man's stupidity. And he wasn't too sure about the universe. But that's the way it's gone now. We have, look, well, and the other thing is this. I'm sure the rural, rural politicians know that what I'm saying is the truth. Because there's one undeniable fact, and they all know it. We're only responsible 0.07% of the world's carbon emissions. And if the Atlantic Ocean was to come in over us tonight and rub us out altogether, it would make no difference whatsoever to the global problem of climate change. And as lads, they think they're going to save the planet by not cutting their lawns or something. They'll save us a drop of petrol, maybe, but and, and maybe it'll suit some of them to want to get a bit of a Saturday morning to do it. But either way, uh, look, I, I, can't, I can't accept that we have to produce. We can sell our food. The food we produce is good. The milk, the meat, the whole lot of it. Vegetables, everything. And here they are. Oh, look. Now it's coming for this interview tonight. Um, I'm going to be in church from 5 to 6 or 6 to 7. Don't be here until 8 o'clock. No, be 5 minutes. Just while I was at the religion there, I want to say, Eamon, in Torres at the moment, we have three priests and an archbishop and in Tina Turner's, or to paraphrase Tina Turner, they are simply the best, the very, very best. And no, I'm not a saint, I'm far from it. And after 14 generations of mortals here, if I was one, I'd be the very first of them to be a saint. But I have to say that uh, I was in, I was in, I was in Church in January 1991. And the priest announced that they were going to start devotion the Blessed Sacrament, or Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, in the cathedral uh, every evening, starting 
more or less then. And I came home and I said to my wife, who was Mary Flynn from the square in Tullis, who I got married to, uh, she wasn't a high flyer. And anyway, <laughs> to go back to that expression again, and uh, uh, we were five kids and 13 grandmother. But anyway, I came home and I said, look, said I, I'm not going to be a minister of the Eucharist, I said, because there'll be a smell of silage off my hands and the Lord's staff going to commune. And I won't be, I said, doing the readings either, I said, because, said I, I'd have to say, why did you back that dog last night? Or are you going to hold the match today? Or something else? But I would give an hour, I said. I would give an hour after the Martin Tunnels every Monday. I would give an hour from five until six in the little church of adoration down in our wonderful cathedral, on which we must put a roof now on, in, 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 in the cathedral. I would do that, I said. And I always remember we had a meeting of what they call adorers. Now, I never deserve to be called that. But we had a meeting anyway, and, and uh, some few years back. And no one could remember when it started. But I could remember it because the Greyhound men, they gave a, gave a very poor national press in this country, and a very poor... But I would never miss the course, the three days course in Clonmel, the best bit of sport. Bobby Morkel and myself went for donkey's years. But in any event, and there aren't any hair skin anymore, there's more. Anyway, but uh, I could remember well. It started, I said, I started the first Monday in February, because the, the course was out on the first three days in February, that day, the first weekend. And I said, I remember when I came back, and you be, I went home early from the course. And I backed the dog in San Bell to win the course, and to win the derby that day, I said. To do that on a Monday, and you wouldn't know it was Wednesday. And I came home, and I went down, and the first prayer I ever went down into the church, I asked Christ if he could see his way that the dog might win the derby, and he did. And that's when it was. It, was, it started in 1991, and I rarely missed a Monday ever since. I just find it. Now, I don't do anything else. I know where religious after that. That's my belief and my trust. I forgot to mention earlier, of course, the greyhounds. Your, your great love for greyhounds. Well, I would have a little... I'll tell you, Eamon, the lads next door, the mortals next door, Jim and Jackie and Bobby and Tom, five boys and three girls, they were styled in the two old houses. Their father and themselves, Jim especially, they were very good at the dogs. And I'll tell you this, if you have time. They gave me a greyhound pup in 1956. In 1957, the only dog ever owned, the first race in Tulls, the red jacket, last, last Saturday in June, my whole life savings. I had seven pounds, 10 shillings. I was six in a coal man's mustard tin in an old drawer in the old room, in the old house. I had, a, I had to accumulate seven pounds. I ran out more drills of beef. It was all beef. I didn't speak about the sugar fat in the loss. It was a degree and terrible disaster it was when it closed. But in any event, I, the, the dog... He was from here as far as the road in front of the third bend. He got beaten on the line, a half a length, by, and the man that owned the dog, the name of the dog that my dog was Bitter Lemon. And the dog, the old trainer of that dog was Jeremy McKenna, who became very famous with dogs afterwards, from Boris O'Kane, and his son Owen, who was very good at him today. But I came home, my dad was looking out at the old door, he died a few years afterwards, very fond of him. And I saw him smiling to himself, I swore the devil I wouldn't say the place again. The following day, we were out in the fort, up behind, over the town, looking in. And he knew I was sick after losing my money, very, very sick. And he pointed over to the race course. You know that place over there is, he said. I do, said I, it's the race course. Why wouldn't I know? 
Then he pointed at the dog track. No, that place in the dairies, he said. I do say that it's the dog track. So I was in there last night. Well, he said, do you see the big building beside it, he said. I do say that. You know that place is, he said. No, no, it's a beautiful place now. I do say, it's the county home, I said. Well, I'll tell you now, he said. If you give long enough right at the first two, he says, they'll finish up in the third one. What a great day for the sermon. It didn't cure me, though. Before we go, 30 seconds on Dorla Sogio, one of the founder members. Well, I tell you, Dor I wasn't exactly a founder member, but I was there from the world go. And they were a great group of lads, I have to say that. They were really great. The Jerry Spain, Mick Carroll, of course, Jimmy Coppinger, you know, Phil O'Mara. They were all there. The great Pat Stakesham. Uh, the, the great Pat Stakesham. And all that, I won't forget him now. But it's a wonderful thing, and it's a place, it's a lovely place to go. So, Dolores Oak and Turtles Sarsfields, and there were my sport, Michael, by the fierce love of sport, and the outside the Catlin land, my whole life, hurling football, greyhounds, horses, anything, but that was it. So, thanks very much, Eamon, for coming. And I have about 50 more things I didn't say at all. Some great stories about cattle and cattlemen, and, uh, you know, so in 10 years' time, if I'm around, if I'm not around, as I always said to lads over the years, they'd call to the cattle sheds and they'd say, Frank, if we're passing this way in a couple of months' time, we'll call in to see you. And I always say, if I'm not around, try the cemetery or the county home. <laughs> So that's our programme for this week. My thanks to all our guests on this week's programme. Don't forget, we'll be back with another edition of Down Your Way at the same time next week. From all of us on the programme, have a very good week. Bye-bye.